You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brenda Gupta, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. When my father died in the early 1980s, it was no surprise that my mother was in the dark about our finances. Although she was on the cusp of receiving her MBA after returning to school, she had otherwise been a prototypical housewife. Not only did she have to deal with the trauma of my father's unexpected passing, but also learn quickly how to manage our money. It was the 1980s, after all. Back then, it was mostly accepted that money management and family finance were a man's job and responsibility. Boy, have things changed since then. Or have they? My guest today says that women are not only fighting the gender pay gap, but rethinking a world designed for the default male. She developed a credit card to help pay back the absurd cost of womanhood, a pink tax estimated to be as high as $1,350 per year. Now, I know that many of you listening today and to financial podcasts in general are men and think that this doesn't relate to you. But I also know that you have wives, daughters, girlfriends, and in my case, a mother who silently fights this battle. Every day. Brenda Gupta is the co-founder and CEO at Sequin, a first-of-its-kind debit card that builds credit for women. Her women-led team of Visa and PayPal experts just announced a $5.7 million seed financing round via Forbes. Brenda, welcome to Earn and Invest. I want to start at the beginning of your story. Tell us what happened when you applied for a Chase Sapphire Reserve card after having worked for Visa for years. Thanks for having me, Doc. Yeah, so I had spent my early career, my first job at Visa, building popular credit cards alongside my team. And, you know, we built a really popular one called the Chase Sapphire Reserve. And I applied for the card because I was very excited to kind of have a card under my own name and start building credit under my own name. And I applied and got rejected while I was at work. And it was this moment where you know, for the first time, I really started thinking about credit or my lack thereof. I had been using a debit card for most of my purchases, and I had been using my dad's credit card as an authorized user, neither of which were building my own credit. And so when I went to apply, even though I had a high income from working at Visa, the credit decisioners don't take income into account. So I lacked credit history. And Immediately, I realized something was wrong. I looked at Visa data and I saw that 70% 
of women were putting their spend on non-credit building tools like me, on debit cards and in cards in other people's names. And given women have this incredible spending power, by the end of this decade, we're actually slated to own 75% of discretionary spend. There felt like there was a mismatch on who was actually controlling the spend and who was getting access to credit. And to me, access to credit is very directly related to access to opportunity. And it felt like there was this gap of where women were going in society and, and kind of our access to opportunity. So ultimately that insight and, and, you know, this, this inequity is what led me to quit my job at Visa and start what is now Sequin. I want to talk in a moment about that mismatch, but before we do, your credit card trauma appears to be generational. You grew up a first generation immigrant in the United States. Talk about your mom's fear of credit cards as an immigrant and as a woman and how that translated into some of your feelings about it. Absolutely. So my family and I are first-generation immigrants from India. And growing up, I watched my mom really have only one fear. To me, you know, my mom is a superhuman. And the one time I saw her kind of rely on my dad because of fear was in the realm of finances, and especially as it related to credit. And that was primarily because my mom felt there were a lot of gotchas in the credit system that, you know, you could get into uncontrollable debt and that could ruin your life. You could make one mistake and it's really hard to come back from it. And so growing up watching her, I realized that I wanted to make sure that I didn't have that same fear. So I could kind of learn for both of us and I can empower myself. I can empower my mom, empower the women around me. And so when I took that job at Visa, it was a lot more than just a job. It was a way to level the playing field generationally and hoping, you know, my future daughter would be sitting in, in my desk and having a very different experience. And that wasn't the case after I got rejected. So it became this kind of bigger piece where finances to me was always a way to kind of equalize power. And, you know, not having that, watching my mom go through that myself go through that and realizing that so many other women were having negative credit experiences just made me feel like if someone didn't do something about this, then, you know, there it, it wasn't going to get better. So even as a kid, you noticed this power differential. I assume that had a major impact on you choosing financial services when it came to an occupation. Yep, absolutely. It, it was just something that was always top of mind and was always important. So I, I felt really fortunate to be able to get a job at Visa, really understand the industry best practices. And I think that made it all the more shocking that I understood how these products were being built because I was building them. And I still, you know, was the recipient of a lot of these these societal and generational biases in the system. So at that time in which you got turned down for the Chase Sapphire Reserve card, you went and did some research. You mentioned that 70% number, which was part of that research. 70% of women were using debit cards. What other information and data did you find about how women were using money and credit? Gosh, where do I start? How much time do you have? I think the core of the challenge is that the financial services industry was never designed with women in mind. And the most shocking stat that I learned was women could actually be denied a credit card without a male cosigner until 1974, which really isn't that long ago in the scheme of history. 
And I also learned that until 1988, we could be denied from business loans. And that is almost my lifetime. And so as we look at the downstream impacts of what it means for products and services not to be designed around a certain population is, of course, we're not going to feel as comfortable interacting with those products because if you don't know how they work, if you don't know how to play the rules of the game, you don't want to play. And so really specifically, some of the stats that I saw were little girls and little boys having an inequity in information around credit by the time they reach high school. So this starts very young. Women were significantly less likely to have a lesson in credit. We all know that we're not really taught about finances in school. So there's not a place in which we're really catching up. So there's this kind of information gap that starts young. The second piece is the industry overall. What I saw was banks were spending 13 times advertising to men than they were to women. And so even if we were interested, even if we had the information, we weren't aware of the products because those products weren't really where we were. The other pieces that I saw was the way that these credit cards are being built today and the reward schemes are centering where men are spending traditionally versus where women are spending traditionally. And that was a huge shift in society that legacy players aren't really keeping up with. So when you see these traditional credit cards, you see a lot of rewards cards, right? And it's these travel rewards where you have airline lounge access and you have all these travel perks. And of course, I like to travel as much as the next person. But the difference is that the categories in which women are spending are fundamentally different than just that travel category. So you see us controlling, as I mentioned, that 75% of discretionary spend, and that includes household spend, that includes retail, it includes beauty, it includes medical services. There are all of these costs of being a woman that aren't really being rewarded in these products. And so in addition to our spend not really rewarded, being rewarded, I felt the way that fundamentally we as women are spending is not being rewarded. And these card products, yes, are aspirational if you, you know, are this business traveler. But if you have other aspirations, like, I mean, really anything else, you want to learn how to code, you want to better your mental health, there's not really those sort of perks on your traditional products. So I felt there was a huge opportunity to build a product that really stood for all the aspirations that we have as women have, which is, you know, everything to take over the world. So there wasn't a, you know, there wasn't really a product that stood for the power that is is women and and women spending power as well. As you spoke of rewards, I thought a lot about that pink tax that I mentioned in the introduction. A lot of people don't know what a pink tax is or don't understand the concept. Explain it for us. So the pink tax is an absurd tax on everyday products and services that affect women. And essentially, women are paying more for everyday products and services 42% of the time. The classic example that's become kind of emblematic of the problem is razors. So there's a men's razor, there's a woman's razor, the woman's one is pink, and all of a sudden it's 42% more expensive for the exact same product. As we think about the pink tax at Sequin and kind of our thesis is, yes, for everyday products and services, they are more expensive for women. But there's a whole slew of hidden costs to being a woman that we're kind of lumping into the pink tax category as well. So a few of those are, you know, women being more likely to be caretakers. And we're taking a step back from our careers many times to be caretakers. So what does that mean in terms of 
when we go back and, and you know, for earning, the gender wage gap is still very real. You know, looking at even mortgages, we're seeing that women are more likely to pay a mortgage back on time, but we are actually getting higher interest rates. And then, you know, we're outliving our husbands as well. So we have these different capital requirements. And that's small things like, I mean, not small in terms of finances, they're, they're big in terms of finances, but every day, I'm not necessarily at night going to be taking public transit because I don't feel safe. And so I'm spending a lot more on ride sharing than I, than, you know, my male ca- counterparts are. Of course, you know, the, the medical services as well for women are so much more. So anyway, I could go on and on, but the pink tax, I think just kind of is, is one of the culprits of all these hidden costs to being a woman. So not only are we not coming into the financial services system on a level playing field. We also have all of these other hidden costs that we have to kind of factor for as well. And so, you know, we're hoping with our products that we can kind of lessen the impact of of some of those, not saying we're going to be able to solve the problem overnight, but, you know, having awareness and being able to pay back some of the costs of the hidden costs of being a woman is, is what we're hoping to do with our product. We're going to talk specifically about Sequin in a moment, but before we do Let's talk about the credit score. Is the importance of the credit score overlooked for women? And are there some unfair advantages to being a man when it comes to credit score? One of our key insights at Sequin and one of the problems with credit scoring today is it reflects systemic biases against women in the scores themselves. So to make an important distinction, it's not that these card issuers are looking at women and saying, if woman, no right? Because that became illegal in 1974. But the challenge is that the factors that go into credit scoring are, again, reflecting these these challenges that women have. And so really specifically, one of the factors, a key factor in your credit score is credit utilization, which is 30-35% of your credit score. And really simply put, your credit utilization is the percentage of your overall credit line that you're using. So, you know, your credit line is $100, you're using 10, 10% is your credit utilization. What's happening with women is because we're getting lower credit lines on average, even if we're using the same amount of our credit, if our credit utilization, the, the raw dollar amount is the same, our credit utilization ends up being artificially inflated and making our risk look higher than it is. And this credit utilization factor is disproportionately affecting women because If you keep your credit utilization below 35%, that'll keep you kind of out of the red zone. But for excellent credit, you want to stay below 10% every day of the month because you don't know when your issuer is going to be reporting your credit usage or your credit utilization to credit bureaus. And so this is something that is affecting women. And we did some studies at Sequin where we had women dramatically reduce their credit utilization every day and their scores went up 20 points on average in a week. And for one woman, it went up 118 points. And so this is a factor and an example of how reporting itself is reflecting, you know, the fact that women are getting lower credit lines, even though, you know, we statistically are better to lend to. And for those who don't understand, why is a higher credit rating important? The way I like to explain credit scores is it's the only grade that matters after you graduate. You need a credit for all of your life's goals, whether it is getting an apartment, many employers look at your credit, of course, bigger life purchases like getting a car, getting a home. You know, most of your life goals are 
very closely tied to financial goals. And many times that is getting access to a loan and and credit, you know, can cost good credit can save you a lot of money over your life and bad credit can cost you a lot over your lifetime. Yeah. Most people forget that your employers actually could look at your credit rating, decide whether to hire you or not, which I think surprises people. So let's jump into Sequin. First and foremost, where did you come up with the name? I love this question. So I founded Sequin when I was doing my MBA summer internship at a design agency called IDEO. And one of my very close colleagues is a very creative person. And before Sequin had a name, I said to him, I want to create you know, a company, a mission that helps women really step into our financial power. And I still want the name to feel tech forward. Ultimately, we're a tech company, but I want it to feel feminine as well. And so he took it back and he came back the next day to work Mad Men style and gave me this presentation. And basically he said, I've come up with a name and its roots are in currency. A lot of Arabic languages and ancient languages have used the root of this word as coin. And it still means currency today in different parts of the world. It used to be a Venetian gold currency until over time, the currency and the gold coins lost value. So people used to wear them as talismans and kept these gold coins as kind of decorative. And now today, it's used in women's clothing and something that really gives clothing an extra sparkle. But it's you know kind of associated with femininity. And I said, oh my gosh, what is this? Do I know this term? And he said, you definitely know it. It's sequin. And it was one of those moments where I just felt kind of warm and fuzzy inside. And I said, okay, that is the name of my company. I loved kind of the history behind it, the duality between deep financial services and femininity. And um, I just thought it was brilliant. So that's the background background of the name and, and a little bit of fun facts and a little bit of history. And as I was reading through it, I guess one of the big questions people probably have is, is Sequin a credit card or is it a debit card? How is Sequin different? What is very unique and innovative about our product is it's actually a debit card that builds credit. Most products in the market are either debit cards or they're either credit cards. And there hasn't really been a merger of the two. And the the product vision was born out of the problem that I saw when I was at Visa from talking to hundreds and hundreds of women was them saying, we find our debit card a lot more comfortable and safe because we can't get into those gotchas of credit that my mom was always really afraid of. And so we said, well, what's the problem with debit? It's not building your credit. And then my co-founder, who spent a decade at PayPal, and I put our heads together and we said, could we actually merge the two products? And we realized that you know, through my deep background in credit and through his deep background at PayPal, we were able to do that. And so it's kind of a first-of-its-kind product that is blending the best of two worlds where it is building your credit, but you kind of have that safety and security of debit. Tell me how that works on the back end, right? So I understand as the utilizer, you're going to be using your card like you would use a debit card. How on the back end does it cause that credit report to improve? This sounds very simple, but technically it's very complex, which is kind of the the sweet spot where you want to be. So essentially, the way our product works is as a user, you sign up for a sequin card. 
and you connect your existing bank account so you don't need to switch banks. And think of Sequin as a credit building layer on top of your checking account. And so we'll issue you a Sequin card, they're Coral, and you'll get your product and you could start using it normally like you would use a debit card. And then on the back end, what we do is partner with a third party and we report your purchases to that third party who reports to all three major credit bureaus. And as I mentioned, we don't report the credit utilization factor, which is something, again, that's biasing against women. So we remove that altogether. So in a sense, is it like you are lending the customer money and such that they're paying it back and it looks almost traditional credit card, but not necessarily for them and the risks? Exactly. That's exactly what's happening. So when you sign up for Sequin, you are signing up for a line of credit. And that line of credit becomes available on your sequin card. And then weekly, you can, whatever you spend, you'll pay back from your connected bank account. And that's all seamless. And then we report those payments to the credit bureaus through our partner. We're talking to Vrinda Gupta. She is the co-founder and CEO at Sequin, a first-of-its-kind debit card that builds credit for women. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is... There's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to the $110 billion moving industry, our crowd is identifying innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest early. Our crowd is the fastest growing venture capital investment community, and many of our crowd's members have benefited from over 40 IPOs or sale exits of portfolio companies. 
Now you can invest in Shift, who combines AI and fintech to automate the moving experience. Shift has helped over 200,000 customers across 68 countries connect with verified movers and afford their move with buy now, pay later financing. Invest today at our crowd. Invest at Shift at OURCROWD.com slash EAI. You can join our crowd for free at OURCROWD.com slash EAI. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at OURCROWD.com slash EAI. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Vrinda Gupta. She is the CEO and co-founder of Sequin, a first-of-its-kind debit card that builds credit for women. Her women-led team of Visa and PayPal experts just announced a $5.7 million seed financing round. Vrinda, we've talked about this a little bit, but I want to get deeper into Sequin rewards. So we said the traditional rewards tend not to necessarily be female-oriented what type of rewards does Sequin have and how does that help with the pink tax specifically? Absolutely. So we are so excited about our rewards program because it's different from any product out there. Essentially, so we have three categories of rewards on Sequin. The first one is 1% cash back on every single dollar you spend. So we make sure that anytime you're spending on Sequin, you're actually pocketing some of the pink tax. The second piece is a cash credit that you get onto Sequin anytime you spend on a category that is pink taxed. And that's that definition is very broad because unfortunately, many categories are pink taxed. So household goods, retail, beauty services, we have a whole list of categories that women traditionally are paying more for than men. And then the third piece is we have discounts and workshops with women-founded companies. And those companies range from mental health services to personal branding services, coding workshops, plant delivery. We just did one this month on investing, and we did another one on climate care and how exactly to reduce your climate footprint in a really kind of intentional and seamless way. And all these companies are led by women. So it's a great way to kind of support other women-founded companies. In addition to those kind of cash rewards that you get, we also have sequin experiences. And so some of those are what we call credit power hours, which are community-based and expert-led credit events. And we bring together our community and we talk about different topics essentially to level that knowledge and information gap and even kind of exceed what the knowledge is out there. And so we talk about different topics like how exactly does the credit system work? How do you think about calculating rewards on traditional credit cards? How do you think about credit when you join a partnership? How do you think about combining your finances? What do you need to know when you go to buy a car, get a house? And so there are all of these great topics. And it's also a wonderful community where women can come together in a safe space and talk about credit with one another. And we also have kind of credit sessions in case you um, just want some one-on-one help with any challenges that you're facing. So we have all of that as well. And it is this great mix of, yes, we have rewards on every dollar, but we also you know, help you a lot with your credit and help you feel like you're a part of a community of women who are just really excited to step into their financial power. When you first thought of Sequin, obviously one of your main concerns was that female consumer 
Is Sequin oriented for female-led businesses too? Do you see it having a role in the business world today? You know, the thing that we say at Sequin is we are for the first time centering women in financial services as the industry just wasn't built with women in mind. That being said, one of my favorite quotes is when you build a product that centers around women, you build a better product for everyone. And unfortunately, the opposite isn't true. And what I'm seeing with Sequin is a bunch of persons who do not identify as women. So men, et cetera, are messaging me and they're saying, this is so cool. I would love to sign up for Sequin. Can I? And, and I said, yes, that is the, the purpose of what we're doing is to make everything more inclusive. And so there's definitely a role, you know, of course, just being women led. Of course, our mission is very women driven. We want to elevate other women on our platform as well. But in addition to that, you know, also being very inclusive and just making sure that anyone who finds our product useful can use it as well. It's an important point because although the theory behind creating Sequin was to help women with their credit woes, et cetera, men probably would find it just as beneficial, if not more than some of the traditional credit cards out there. And certainly a man struggling with credit score issues could definitely use Sequin to help them. Absolutely. I mean, the product itself is is really a first of its kind product. So, you know, we started off with the problem that women were struggling with building credit and and leveling that playing field. But ultimately, what we came to is, you know, I think a better product for everyone. Let's pivot to some of the stylistic decisions. Does the card really have a double mirror on it? We want to fill the mirror out in the future, but our card today is Coral, which we love. And we actually, a, a tenant of how we do product development at Sequin is actually co-creation. And, you know, my vision with Sequin was never that I kind of put out my personal preferences out there and I build something. It's it's very much talking to our users every single day and and having them feel a part of this development process of revolution, revolutionizing finances for women. And so we came to Coral after looking at a bunch of different colors with our community. And the women loved Coral because they said it's a color that looks good on every skin tone. And we were talking about makeup and, and you know, they said part of what's great about Sequin is how we preach inclusivity. And so we want, you know, this card to look good on everyone. In the future, I think it would be so much fun to be able to co-create different designs as well. But today we have this awesome coral card, which we really love. So far, we've been talking about your business venture, Sequin. And I think that's part of your story. But the other part of your story is growing up as a first-generation immigrant woman of color in a predominantly male world of financial startups. Tell me about your experiences. Has it been strange being different than most of the people you're coming up with as a founder of a new business? I mean, is it strange? Yes. I think it's strange because women are such a huge opportunity to serve. This, you know, I, I saw a lot of stats out there and they're saying that serving women in financial services is actually the singus, single largest opportunity in financial services today. And that's from McKinsey and that's from Oliver Wyman. So it's from reputable sources. And of course, you know, I know that intellectually, but it is interesting where, you know, we just went through Y Combinator and which is an amazing startup accelerator. And you know, most of my fellow founders do kind of identify as men and, and, you know, they're so supportive. But ultimately, I look around and 
I look different, right? Not only being a woman, but being a woman of color and being a first generation immigrant. And, you know, there are definitely days where that is intimidating, right? But I think there are most days where I wake up and that's what makes me feel like is my superpower that I do look different and I have this differentiated set of life experiences, which a lot of people identify with. And I can extend the empathy to them and be able to put that into our product. And I think it's allowed me to look at financial services in an entirely different way and question the status quo because really the products that I was building weren't serving me. And so I was able to look at them and say, okay, you know, could there be a product that aligns more with my values? Could there be a product that aligns more with my life experiences? And turns out, you know, there's a lot of women like me and a lot of opportunity in that space just from a business perspective as well. So I guess to answer your question, it's strange. There are a lot of days where I put on a braver face than maybe I'm feeling on the inside when, you know, everyone's looking different than I am. But again, I just hone in on, I hope to be a voice for a lot of populations that have been marginalized and that really, you know, are deserving of getting credit and are deserving of being included in, in the system. So that's kind of how I think about this every day. Do you ever feel like you're being excluded from conversations because of your gender or because of your ethnic background? I get a lot of, are you the CEO? Are you the founder? I think, you know, those types of questions, I don't hear my male counterparts getting as much. I think a piece that I lean very heavily into is A, data, and B, my expertise and my background. And I think, you know, being a first-generation immigrant your values are humility. I think that's one of the pieces that I've always grown up with. That's something I've always respected. And especially in this world where it is very male-dominated, being able to obviously still be humble, but just grounding in facts and saying, hey, I know what I'm talking about. I built credit products for six years at the industry-leading company. I wrote the rules and I'm well-researched on the data of why this is a problem and why products like we're building at Sequin should exist. So I think, you know, leaning into data and facts, those are a bit harder to argue with. So yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I try not to spend too many calories thinking about that, right? And I just kind of step into, this is the mission, this is what needs to exist in the world. But the the reality, I mean, the stats exist and I see them as well. So it's always, I guess both things can be true is, yeah, just making sure that you are in that room and you are coming off confident, even the times where it is, it is a little scarier. (laughs) I'm thinking of the power of women entrepreneurs creating products for women. We talked about the story of your mom and the fear of her credit. How has it been for her to watch you build these products and start this business? On those days where I don't feel confident, I call my mom and I just say, mom, I don't know about today. And she just hypes me up and she says, because of what you've built at Sequin, I feel confident in my finances. And I feel I, you know, she applied for her first credit card in her own name. And she's been the one calling the bank and talking to them. And that is just 
the best feeling in the whole world is my mom feeling empowered because that is, you know, really where all of this started. And now I have the pleasure of talking with hundreds of women every day who say, you know, because of Sequin, I was able to leave a bad relationship that I was in because I was worried about my finances. And there's young women who are saying, you know, I feel so much more empowered, you know, on my career trajectory now because I have access to this information. But yeah, you know, my mom is my biggest inspiration and is my biggest hype woman every day. So, you know, she, she is, she's as excited, if not, you know, more <laughs> than, than me whenever anything happens. Thinking of you and your mom together makes me wonder how different generationally these groups of women are. Do you think, for instance, millennial and Gen Z women have different concerns than maybe your mom's generation did? I think the key difference is the rates at which young women are entering the workforce, which is more than ever. And our spending power is more than ever. And so I think a big concern for millennial Gen Z young women, young professional women is how do I make sure that I'm protecting myself and that I am getting access to another person who has the same spending power and the same trajectory as I do? And so one of the really interesting and heartening pieces of talking to young women around Sequin is they're very eager to learn. And it's not enough to just give them a product and say, trust this, this is going to build your credit safely, which is the truth. But also they want to know why that's happening. They want to know what goes into credit scoring. They want to know what the biases are in the system. So they're very eager for knowledge as well. And that's something that I think is really unique. And I think is something that has been core to our product is not only having a product that you know accomplishes what they're trying to do, which is build credit, pay back the pink tax, but also allows them to feel empowered with knowledge as well. And they know that that's credible knowledge and it's not this kind of secondhand, learn this from my dad's friend knowledge. I don't know if this is true or it's not true. So I think that safety and credible knowledge coming from women credit experts is something that's really powerful as well. You're not building sequin in a vacuum. Things are happening in the world. We just obviously are go went through and are going through a pandemic. We've all been surprised by this great resignation. A lot of people have been leaving the workforce, including a lot of women. How do you think that's affected your work at Sequin? Has it changed the way you thought about your product? The original concept for Sequin was born pre-pandemic. And the idea was, we're going to make a premium credit card that has rewards that are more focused around where women are spending versus where men are spending, which is not too dissimilar from our rewards program today. But the challenge that I saw during the pandemic was twofold. The first was I would talk to women and they would say, I'm really interested in this credit product, but actually, how does credit work? I'm not sure if I'm building credit properly. And so I realized that there was a huge need to actually help women enter the system and not just say, okay, here's another credit product. Because maybe I would have to reject them from Sequin, or maybe I would have to give them a lower credit line. And that is exactly what we're fighting against. So that was the first piece, was just understanding that credit in and of itself became a lot more top of mind than it was pre-pandemic. And then the second piece was because of this great resignation and 
women leaving the workforce, but also requiring help with their businesses, we're seeing that women were A, more reliant on credit, and B, we're struggling to get PPP and business loans as well, which is very directly related to credit because many times, especially if you're a smaller business, the underwriters will look at you as a person for your credit versus your business. And so these women were personally struggling with their credit, and then that was affecting their ability to run their businesses as well. And so I guess this is all to say during the pandemic, I realized that there is a huge problem with just the credit building aspect of it. And that's where we needed to start if we were to really address the problem. And so, you know, after we were into the pandemic, we started thinking a lot about how do we go from a traditional credit product, which may, you know, exasperate a lot of the pro- a lot of the problems that are out there to a product that's actually nurturing and guiding women into the system, building credit in kind of a a way that doesn't have all those gotchas in the system and, you know, helps you understand how exactly to thrive once you're actually within the system and building credit in your own name. Verinda, let's talk a little bit about your trajectory as a founder. After you had this episode with the Chase Sapphire card, you left your job and you went to the Berkeley Haas School of Business to get an MBA. Tell me about that decision to go get an MBA. I mean, you don't necessarily need an MBA to be a founder. Why did you take that step? You know, all the dots are clear when you look back, right? But I think if I were to if I were to be in my head, where my head was at at that point, I knew there was a huge opportunity to do something better for women and financial services. And I didn't quite understand what my options were because most of my career had been spent in one place, which was Visa. And so business school to me was a great way to explore what the options were. And I think at that point, I thought, Maybe if I got my MBA and I was the head of innovation at a big bank, I could solve this problem. And I got offers at those big banks. And I realized that the problem of women in financial services was a lot more systemic and I wasn't going to be able to solve it within the existing system. And so being in business school actually allowed me to ultimately find my MBA summer internship, which was at IDEO. And it's a group of creative folk that are questioning the status quo. And so when I was there, I was able to, you know, talk about this idea a little bit more. Also, the timing was good where Time's Up was happening, Me Too was happening. And so I started developing more and more conviction that women could make an impact with our dollar and actually are searching for products and services that are aligned with our values. And so when I was doing my MBA summer internship, I said all of this very quickly to women in a restroom as we're washing hands. And I add that, I add the restroom bit because this is why it's important to have women in leadership where, you know, I think this happens to men all the time. We're on the golf course, you're in the restaurant, your places, and you're pitching your startup idea. And they say, oh, I'll give you funding. So there is this woman who is on the investment team at IDEO. And she said, I didn't know that at the time, but she said, I love this idea. You know, we can give you a bit of startup capital. Do you think this is you know, something you would want to pursue seriously, because I think this is a huge opportunity. And that was the first time where I felt, you know, maybe I could be an entrepreneur and maybe I could go after this and and seriously, you know, make this my life. And so, you know, again, as I mentioned, the, the, the dots connecting backwards, it was, I got to leave Visa, I got to go to business school and, you know, have all this optionality. 
then I was at this MBA summer internship and that led to everything. But I think I was really just in search of some truth around what is the challenge in the system? Can I fix it from within the system or do I have to do something completely differently? And, and you know, spoiler alert, it, it required a complete overhaul in how we're looking at finances today. It's an interesting point because clearly you have a mind towards social activism, but it begs the question, how do we become social activists? Can you do that within the framework of this big business as it stands, or do you need to be a co-founder? From your story, it sounds like for you, being a founder itself gave you more room to practice that social activism. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, had there been a company like Sequin, maybe I would have put my hat in the ring to work at that company, right? But there wasn't really anything like it. And it was kind of this perfect intersection between my deep expertise in credit and fintech, but also, you know, this very real human experience that I had as, you know, as we talked about as a woman, as an immigrant, as, you know, a person of color. And so I was able to kind of bring those together and say, I can actually do something about this. But I did become very obsessed with this idea of the social enterprise. And it was actually one of the reasons I was interested in going to business school was maybe finding social enterprise type, type companies. And I loved this idea that you could do good by doing well. And I felt there was a lot of opportunity to do that. And then when I realized, okay, well, the realm that I want to do that in is going to require someone to care a lot and dedicate their life to this. And I haven't found that someone that I could kind of tag to. So I I think this requires me going out on a limb and maybe I am that someone. That's kind of how I thought about it all coming together. You mentioned fintech. We really haven't talked much about that today. How has that played a role in your journey in Sequin? I count my lucky stars every day for my background and my experience at Visa and some of the incredible mentors that I had when I was there. I had an a very unique opportunity when I was at Visa where I was one of the few new graduates at that time to really join the credit cards team. And I very quickly had taken on a lot of responsibility where I owned the Visa rules nationwide. So I wrote those rules and I was also in charge of enforcing them as well. So any new Visa card that was launched from my tenure at Visa was, you know, I had my hands in and I understood how these products worked. And I was you know, comfortable talking to regulators. I was comfortable talking to executives of big banks at a very, very young age. And I feel very grateful for that experience. So today, as my co-founder and I are building Sequin, I feel our expertise has helped us create this unique type of product that is this debit card that builds credit. Because many times, you know, we'll be talking to our partners, we'll be talking to our regulators, and they're saying, you know, the visa rules or the Network that the industry rules are not, you know, built to allow for this. And it's a pretty incredible feeling to be able to say, actually, I wrote those rules. And the intention behind that rule is actually not how you're interpreting it. And this is why. And so having that background and being able to understand what the intention was behind how products are being built and then being able to, I guess, understand the rules and then know how to break them a little bit is another piece that has been, you know, very challenging, but also really fun and in, in creating something brand new. There are many people listening right now who look forward to the idea of being a founder. You've now walked this path. Tell us about some of the big mistakes you've made that 
that maybe you'd warn other people about making? I would say if I were to go back to myself when I first became a founder, the biggest piece of advice that I would give myself is to trust myself. I think I spent a lot of time early on being a founder trusting other people more than I trusted myself. And consistently, you know, the best intentions are out there, but there's a lot of bad advice out there as well. And I think, you know, many times I would say, well, this person has founded multiple companies. This person's a venture venture capitalist. They must have all the answers. When in reality, you as the founder are the person who understands your problem and understands your users. And so you're going to be the person who's best posted, best positioned to make, make decisions. And so trusting yourself, trusting your gut. And I think the other piece is just, I feel I was always looking for this magical person that, oh, there's going to be this per if I if I just get access to this person, I'll be able to find all the answers that I need. And I think that realization that that magical person is me <laughs> and now my co-founder is is really empowering. And knowing that you have everything you need and the things that you don't have, talk to your users and they'll tell you those answers. So betting on yourself, trusting your gut, and just realizing that you and the people who you're building for are going to be the ones building your product is really, really powerful. I think the second piece I would say is there are a lot of distractions in this world. You know, there's a lot of noise. And I think there is, you know, this concept in life where it's like Instagram versus reality, right? What are you portraying versus what's going on in the background? And I think as a founder, I I call it tech crunch versus reality. You know, you see all these big funding rounds and you see, you know, well, this entrepreneur did that. And so maybe that's a great opportunity area to go after. And there's just so much you don't know that's going on behind the scenes. And so again, just ignoring that, I don't even read those publications because I don't want to get distracted. But early on in my founding journey, I would you know, be reading Twitter, be reading all these publications all the time and comparing myself and comparing my company and, and my mission to them and you know, realizing that Again, talking to your users and building your product is is the most important thing. And doing very little outside of that is is kind of the recipe of making progress in your startup. Well, Verinda, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. Normally, when we think about business building, we think about founders, we often either think about someone who wants to just make a lot of money or is really passionate about an idea specifically. What's refreshing about your story is I think you started with social activism and this idea of inequity and then built a business around that. It really speaks to this idea that you can do well while doing good, which is something you said earlier in the interview. And it just goes to show that we have different reasons for building the businesses we build. And it's been exciting to listen to your story about Sequin and why you've built this business of credit that will help women with their credit scores, as well as some of the inequities of our financial system. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and if people want to learn more, how they can reach you. So first and foremost, what is up next in your life and with Sequin? Yeah, absolutely. So we're so excited about 2022. We are launching the rewards program that we talked about in addition to our credit building functionality. So we actually have a wait list that we're going to be letting people off of shortly. So if you're interested in learning more, you can go to www.sequincard.com. There's more information there. 
you can put your name in the sign up. We'll add you to the wait list and then we'll make sure that you're the first to know when, when we are launched. And if people have questions for you specifically, where can they find you on socials? Yeah. So my personal Twitter is Vrinda underscore tweet. So that's a great way my DMs are open. And yeah, I think that's prob- probably the best best way to reach me. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Jordan Grummet, a.k.a. Doc G, I wanted to thank Vrinda Gupta. That's a wrap. Hey, everybody. Just a little update on our ground team. The ground team is a chance for you, an Earn and Invest listener, to become part of my team for my book launch of Taking Stock. That's going to be during the first week of August. We already have almost 100 participants. If you sign up to be part of the ground team, you are going to get extra video. You're going to get snapshots into the book early, and you're going to get other content and blogs Become part of this community. Help me get this book out. Again, we're starting early because the ground team needs to be in place by early August. I hope you check it out. Just go to earnandinvest.com and right up at the top of the page, there'll be a place for you to learn more about the ground team. Come become part of the Earn and Invest and Taking Stock team. Thanks for listening. Cool. Not fun. Gosh, Doc, your your questions are really, really thoughtful. I've done a few of these and I think each of them kind of focuses on just one aspect of the journey, right? Either my background or what it's like to be a founder or the product or the tech behind it. And I think you did clearly had done your research and did a wonderful job just kind of blending all those together. So I thank you. I love the I love the when the story is holistic and it is more like you can see the moving parts come together versus them in the silo. So thank you for for all of your research. Oh, no problem. I I really, so there are a few things and I've said this kind of before on this podcast. If I'm going to interview you, I need to do my homework because I obviously want to ask you the questions that are going to bring out your story. But I also kind of have that more holistic view when I have someone on. I really kind of want to get to the bottom of what makes them unique and interesting. And so talking about the product, talking about Sequin is really cool and interesting, but kind of delving deeper and finding out why are you the person right now who came up with this and how it has this process affected your life, I think just makes for a really nice arc to a conversation. And this is you know, it's earn and invest. So it's more of a holistic story as opposed to this is how you get a good credit score or this is how you put money in your 401k, et cetera. So, so I, I, it's important to me to kind of tell a person's story because I think that's, to me, that's where the excitement and the interest really lies is, is pulling it all together into something that makes sense. So like when I look at your story, I say, ah, this kind of makes sense because I understand a little bit about her childhood. I understand a little bit about, you know, her mother's fears. I understand a little bit about Sequin and what it does. And I understand about Verinda as a business person, right? As a founder, which is something that we all have interest in because it's kind of that cult of personality. What makes you a founder? What makes you successful when people fail all the time at doing things? So to me, that that stuff is really interesting. Tell me, is there anything we didn't talk about in the episode that you wished to speak about? Because this is right now the after show, and I usually include bits of this or all of this on kind of the back end. So is there anything that you'd want to talk about that we didn't? I'm trying to think. Honestly, I think you asked all of the right questions, and I think I was able to say everything I wanted to say. So 
I don't think so. It was just so much fun. I had a good time. Yeah. And I, I always say also that that's my goal. Like, I feel like the best episodes are when people walk away from it saying, oh, that was really fun. Like, the, the, because usually if you're comfortable, that means like it just comes out better and the story comes out better. And it, it's just, you know, a good recording in general. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.